so the story of the missing 150 years or the historical riddle of the missing 150 years. So I'll tell you the truth. This is a topic that I was not initially planning to address. Usually I'm open to addressing almost any topic relating to Judaism um, and our people. Uh, but there's certain topics I avoid for various reasons. Um, this would have been one of them because I like to address topics that have solutions that I can explain that make sense. I don't like raising problems without solutions. And what we're going to do now is I am going to raise a big problem, um, what I think may be one of the biggest historical problems that, there, that we know of. And I honestly have no satisfactory solution. Um, so I don't, I'm just going to tell you the problem. I'm going to share with you the problem. So we Jews have a pretty strong recorded history going back to Moses. And even before Moses, we have, we, this year is 5783. And we can essentially count 5,783 years and tell you what happened throughout that history. We have a detailed history going all the way back to Moses. Moses lived about 3,300 years ago, um, according to our traditions. We have a very detailed history going back. We have dates, we have years, we have peoples, we have events in history at every single stage in history. Very, very detailed. The first 1,000 years or so since Moses is described in the various works of Tanakh, of our Holy Scripture. The Torah itself discusses the life of Moses from, or the, from the Exodus, um, going all the way through to Moses' death. And then it picks up after Moses' death in the book of Joshua. We have the book of Judges. The book of Samuel speaks about the life of Samuel, Saul, and David. Um, we have the... Thank you. We have the books, uh, we have later books of Kings. We have another book of Chronicles, which very much mirrors the book of Kings and fills in a lot of missing details. Um, we then also have a number of books of prophecy that cover later periods um, during what was called the period of the Kings. Uh, we, have, uh, we have the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, we have the stories post the king period, post the destruction of the temple. We have a number of books dealing with them. So covering about a period of a thousand years, we have a lot of books of scripture. In addition, we also have a strong oral tradition that was not written down at the time. Following that biblical period, um, which ends at the very beginning of what's called the classical period, which is, starts around 311 BCE. Um, and um, the, starting with the classical period, we have a pretty strong record, both from books at the time, books like Maccabees, Hasmoneans, and other books that were written at the time, as well as um, Megillah Tain, is a Hebrew book, um, as well as books that were written over the coming years um, in what would be um, the Roman era, um, or the late classical era in the um, first, second centuries, and then moving on to the Midrashic and Talmudic uh, period in the third and fourth centuries, and even fifth century. So we have a long, very lot of works, many of some directly dealing with history, some dealing with other things, but in passing, touch on various historical episodes and various histor historic events. So we have a very, very strong record of our Jewish history. The only other primary source from the Near East um, that gives us a very strong record of 
history are Greek sources, from the, also from the classical period. The Greek sources pretty much begin in the classical period, uh, which starts again around 311 BC, um, and continues um, and continues for um, hundreds of years, both in the early classical period, which was kind of various Greek kingdoms, um, Egypt for a while, Alexandria was a center of many great scholars um, and historians, uh, and then uh, most of the works that we have are from Alexandria, then later historians during uh, the Roman period in the first, second centuries, um, and uh, later. So we have kind of a very strong Greek history. I mean, the Greeks didn't just write their own history, but they wrote um, Egyptology, a lot about Egypt, about the Babylonians, Assyrians, um, uh, and uh, Persians, as we'll see, and many other groups that inhabited the area. So those are our two primary sources um, for history. We have a third source that we've developed over the last 150 years, which is archaeology. Now, archaeology does not tell a story generally, except in the rare instances where we were able to dig up entire stories, but that's fairly rare. We have some, um, but not many. But archaeology is usually bits and pieces. You could dig up old cities, um, old roads, um, other things, old inscriptions, old graves. Um, and uh, archaeology has given us a lot of information um, all over the world, but particularly in the Near East, um, in the Middle East, has given us a lot of information about the ancient world. So those are just where we're coming from when we even talk about history in the ancient world. The challenge that we're going to deal with today is our dating of history. Now, according to our Jewish traditions, the first temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian emperor who captured the land of Israel in 421 BCE. The second temple was built 70 years later, and in BCE we, try, we, we count backwards, right? Once you're off the common area, you're counting forwards, and BCE you count backwards. So the first temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 421 BCE. The second one was built in 351 BCE. The second temple stood for 420 years and was destroyed in the year 70 CE. Now, the, this, the destruction of the second temple in the year 70 CE, or give or take a year in general, in chronology, in dating things, um, things that are within a year or two, um, are not really considered contradictions. Because for various reasons, um, there's often discrepancies within a year or two, depending on when, which day the year actually starts, depending on whether you count years um, um, starting with zero or starting with one. There's various reasons for discrepancies of a year or two. It's fairly common. But around the year 70, um, the second temple was destroyed. That is fairly well established from many, many different sources, both Jewish and Greek Roman sources. Uh, we have many sources establishing 70 as the year, um, or 69, 70 as the year of the destruction of the temple. So, of the second temple. But the issue is really with the destruction of the first temple and the building of the second temple. The Jewish tradition has the destruction of the first temple, 421 BCE, and the building of the sec second temple in 351 BCE. However, according to the Greek accounting, which is widely used today, and it's the standard history that you'll learn if you do a class on classical history, if you did a class in high school or college, you'll learn this. 
Um, according to that tradition, the first temple was destroyed in 586 BC. And the second temple was built in 516 BC. According to this, the second temple stood for 585 years, not 420, 585 years, and was destroyed in the year 70. So there is a gap between these two accountings of when the second temple was built of 165 years. That's a pretty large gap. 165 year gap. That's very, very significant. Minor contradictions in chronology, in early dating of things, especially since now we count from the year zero, and that's become the standard counting, and everyone has the same counting. We're in the year 2022. Nobody argues with that. But, but in ancient times, there wasn't a standard way of counting. So the small discrepancies are very common in early chronology of ancient history. But a 165-year gap, how do you explain that? Where does this difference come from? Now, mind you, the history is built based on, a lot of history is built based on these numbers. So we say, well, the second, first temple was destroyed. It itself lasted for around 400 years. So we'll date King Solomon and King David before him 400 years earlier. So when Solomon and David lived is going to depend on when the second temple was built and when the first temple was destroyed. Going back even further, we'll date Moses and the Exodus is going to all depend on when these events happened. If they happened at a later date, as our Jewish history tells us, then that means that all of the events going back to the Exodus all happened at a later date. If they happened at an earlier date, as the Greek history tells us, then that means all the early events, David, Solomon, all the earlier events go back much earlier. Not only our own Jewish events, but it means we know before the Assyrian Empire, there was a Babylonian Empire. Before the Babylonian Empire, there was an Assyrian Empire. Sorry, before the Persian Empire, there was a Babylonian Empire. Before the Babylonian Empire, there was an Assyrian Empire. We, if we push everything back, we're pushing it all back. If we push it forward, we're pushing everything forward. It pushes all the history. Changes the whole way we look at history. So it's a real challenge. Where does this 165-year gap come from? So there's various details to it, but the primary problem is the Persian Empire and how long the Persian Empire lasted for. And here there is a huge difference between our Jewish traditions and what they teach us about the Persian Empire and the Greek history and what it tells us about the Persian Empire. According to Jewish traditions, the Persian Empire was a very short-lived empire. It lasted for only 52 years. According to the Greek version, the Persian Empire lasted for 208 years. That's a 156-year gap between the, two, between the two versions of this Persian Empire. In other words, in the Greek version, the Persian Empire was four times as long as in the Jewish version. That's a very big difference in how you're describing a very important part of history. 
the, per- the Persian Empire was one of the largest empires in history. At its height, it stretched from Greece all the way in the west to uh, Egypt in the south, to the Black Sea in the north, and all the way to, the, to India in the east. So this was a massive empire covering, covering much of the Middle East, uh, Western Asia, um, even going all the way into Europe, into uh, what today would be Turkey, Greece, um, in, in, into Europe. It was quite a going into Africa, down to Egypt. It was quite a large empire. Surprisingly, though, we have no books of records from the Persian Empire. None of them have been copied um, into other languages or copied um, where we still have copies of those books from the Persian Empire. Um, There's references to books from the Persian Empire. They definitely wrote chronology. They definitely wrote history books just like every other empire did. They had, um, in fact, they they had official scribes in the court that wrote history, as every court did, every empire did, but none of it survived. We have none of it. We have almost no records of the Persian Empire itself. Not only that, there is very, very little archaeological record of the Persian Empire. Very little has remained. We found lots of ancient Greek and Roman records. Egypt, um, there is endless records, thanks to all the mummies that they made and the way they buried people. Um, and we have thousands of mummies and um, pyramids and all sorts of other burial um, crypts that the Egyptians built. So Egypt has a huge archaeological record. Much of the ancient world has strong archaeological records. Um, but almost, including throughout the Middle East, but there is very, very little archaeological record of the, of the Persian Empire. Um, it seems for some reason to be elusive. So our knowledge of the Persian Empire comes almost exclusively from Greek and Jewish writers. Some were contemporary or sl- either living at the same time of the Pers- as the Persian Empire or slightly after the Persian Empire. Some, most of these writers lived hundreds of years later, um, a couple hundred years later. That's most both Jewish and Greek writers are living hundreds of years later. But they, from their records and from their accounts, there appears to be two different versions of the history with no effective way to reconcile these two versions of history. So what exactly are these two versions? So the Greek version is based on various early Greek historians. Um, Herodotus was the... uh, uh, Sorry, Herodotus was the... um, most famous early Greek uh, historian. There were other early Greek historians. These early Greek historians lived right around the end of the Persian Empire, or the beginning, the years right after the Persian Empire. They don't really go through a chronology of the Persian Empire, but they tell stories of various wars and various battles and various events in the Persian Empire. Um, And so uh, from them we get a picture of various things that happened. Later historians, Apion is probably the most famous later historian who lived in the um, late 1st, early 2nd century. Um, 
first century in uh, Egypt. Um, Josephus is, uh, was a Jewish historian, but considered Greek. He wrote in Greek, and, um, and uh, his versions of history are very much Greek. Um, and other histor uh, later historian, uh, um, Greek historians um, also put together kind of more cr chronological, but not, again, entirely complete chronologies of um, the Persian Empire. It was only much later scholars, Arabic scholars in the 7th and 8th centuries, that historians that really put together an organized history of the kings, the emperors, how many years each one reigned, um, and the kind of various details of various wars, putting it all together, taking the various Greek works and putting it together um, to create what we have today as the history of the Persian Empire. Um, that history has been has evolved and been refined over the years um, and all the way into modern times we've made various adjustments to fit in various discoveries that we've made over time um, and so that's the um, that's the what we could call the standard um, view today of the Persian Empire the way based on these Greek accounts the way it's taught in history books, the way historians will teach it in college today, um, the way any history book you'll open will teach it. Essentially, in this view, it sees the Persian king Cyrus conquering before the Persian Empire. Much of the Middle East was controlled by a Babylonian Empire. Babylonia was an empire based in Babylon, modern-day Iraq, Mesopotamia. And uh, Persia, of course, is to the east of Iraq. And so there was a Persian king, Cyrus, who conquers Babylon in 539 BCE. You could follow along the chronology over here in this central um, column in this handout I gave you. Um, 539 BCE is the fall of Babylon. And essentially Cyrus then extends his reign and builds this large empire. There are then after Cyrus another nine Persian emperors. Um, Cambyses, Darius I, Xerxes I, um, Artaxerxes I, Darius II, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, Arsus, and finally Darius III. Darius III fights, has a battle with the Greeks at um, Guagam Guagamila, and um, he loses this big battle. It's in northern Iraq near Mosul, and um, he lo after losing this battle, Alexander leads the Macedonian Greeks to conquer the Persian Empire. Um, and uh, they soon afterwards conquer the capital Susa, and that brings an end to the Persian Empire. The entire the Persian Empire in its entirety falls under Greek rule of Alexander. That is the story of the Persian Empire, um, and that happens in three. Uh, that happens in three thirty one. So that is the story of um, the Persian Empire according to the Greek version. Then there's a totally different Jewish version. Our Jewish traditions, based on the works in Tanakh, which are, these traditions are found in a number of works, in the books of Haggai and Zechariah, um, among the books of our prophets, our two prophets that lived during that time, um, in the book of Daniel, and then in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, these books all describe the period after the destruction of the first temple. So this is a period that began first under the Babylonian Empire, and not long later, the Babylonian Empire becomes, is conquered by the Persian Empire, and now Jews in Babylon and in the land of Israel are under control of the Persian Empire. 
the Tanakh itself, scripture itself, ends before the end of the Persian Empire. There is no description or reference to the Greeks in scripture itself. At least not to a Greek empire. There are references to the Greeks, but not the Greek empire in scripture itself, in Tanakh. So the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, end before the end of the Persian Empire. But the descriptions as this, of the Persian Empire, as described in Tanakh, appear very much to follow, Daniel speaks of four Persian king, uh, emperors, and appear very much to follow what the way, the, uh, what we call the rabbinic tradition, or the Jewish tradition, that is really detailed at a later stage, like the Greek tradition, that only gets really organized a few hundred years later. The Jewish tradition also is really only organized and detailed a, hundred year, a few hundred years later. Um, the clearest description of the Persian Empire comes from a book called Seder Olam, which was written around the beginning of the second century. Um, it has, um, there are also dozens of other sources throughout Talmudic and Midrashic literature that all essentially describe and rely on this same version and assume the same understanding of the Persian Empire. And here's the Jewish version of the Persian Empire. In this view, there is a Mede king, there's two kingdoms um, side by side, there's a Persian kingdom, and then to the north of Persia, there's the kingdom of Media, also mentioned by the Greeks. The Mede king Darius, along with his son-in-law, the Persian king Cyrus, um, together join forces and capture Babylon in 369 BC. According to this version, um, at first Darius is king of this new empire, this new Persian Empire, but his reign lasts for less than a year. On his death, his, and Darius is a Mede, not a Persian. At his, after his death, there are three more kings. First, his son-in-law Cyrus, then Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, and then Darius, the second Darius. And the empire ends with the conquest of Persia by the Macedonian Greeks, in 311 BC. That is the Jewish tradition. Any questions? Well, we're dealing with a big question, but, or comments. So these two versions, these two accounts of the Persian Empire are pretty stark and hard to reconcile. Where do these 156 years vanish to? Where did they go? Now, the, to be clear, Jewish history itself is very much intertwined with the Persian and Babylonian history. The Babylonians captured the temple, captured Israel, conquer, destroy the temple, exile Jews to Babylon. Jews are living in Babylon under Babylonian rule. They're in Babylon when the Persians capture Babylon. They live under Persian rule of these various kings. There are Jewish ministers in both the Babylonian and Persian court. Daniel is the classic. Mordechai and Esther are in the, uh, in the Persian court. Um, there are other Jewish ministers. The, Bab the um, emperor Cyrus gives the Jews permission to rebuild the temple. Then it gets stopped. Then they resume the rebuilding under Darius. Um, they conclude the rebuilding. So all of this, and then Alexander conquers the Persian Empire, the Greeks conquered this Persian Empire, and now um, 
the Jews, both in Babylonia and in, in, in Persia and in um, Israel and Egypt, all find themselves under Greek rule. So all of this is very relevant to our Jewish history. The Jews writing the history experienced the Persian Empire. They lived in the Persian Empire at the time of this story, of these events of the Persian Empire. The Greek history itself is not as central in the Persian Empire, but it's very much in, in other words, they didn't live throughout the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire, but it's very much intertwined also with the Persian Empire. Firstly, there were Greeks um, already by now. There were Greek colonies in various places in the Persian Empire. Greece itself faces multiple wars with the Persian Empire over many, many years. Um, there are multiple major wars. For at least a period, the Persians control Greece um, for a significant period. Um, when they lose control, they regain control at, at various periods and they fight various wars with the Greeks until finally the Greeks defeat the Persians um, and control, take over the Persian Empire. So Greek, the Greeks have quite a... Um, uh, are very, their history itself, their own history, is very much intertwined with the Persian Empire. In other words, both the Jewish story and the Greek story are not just telling a story of an empire far away somewhere and how it existed, and they just ended up with two different stories. They're each telling their own history. The Jewish sources are telling Jewish history, but it's within the Persian and Babylonian empires. The Greeks are telling their own history. But it's within the Persian, it's at least interconnected with the history of the Persian and Babylonian empires. So these are not just kind of foreign histories. These are their own histories that they're telling. And yet there is this huge difference. Is it a very short-lived 52-year empire or this long two-century empire? Very, very big different story. Now, the truth is the contradictions don't, while the Difference in years is the greatest contradiction. The contradictions don't really end there. There are multiple other contradictions. In Jewish sources, the empire is not called Persia. It's called Mahot Paras Omadai. It's called the Persian Mede Empire. It's a Persian Mede Empire. It is a partnership or a federation between two kingdoms or two nations, Persians and Medes, who together control this empire. The first emperor, according to the Jewish tradition, is Darius the Mede. He's a Mede. The Jewish traditions tell us that other emperors, Cyrus um, uh, was a Mede, not a Persian. Cyrus was a Persian. It was Persian Mede. They had uh, presumably both, they, the leadership was split between Persians and Medes, and the, uh, some emperors were Persians, some emperors were Medes, and then the other leadership roles were also split between Persians and Medes. In the Greek sources, there is no mention of the Mede involvement in the empire. They do speak of a Mede kingdom that existed north of Persia, but there's no mention of a Mede empire. There's no mention of an emperor, Darius the Mede, or Hasuras being a Mede. There's no mention of these. Um, there's no mention of the Mede section of the em empire. 
Why? Other contradictions, um, while both things have Darius and Cyrus, um, both versions of history, the um, Jewish version has Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, um, while the Greeks have Sersus or uh, Artaxerxes, um, maybe it's the same as Ahasuerus, sounds somewhat similar, hard to know. Um, in the Jewish tradition, in Tanakh, it does mention um, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is mentioned a number of times, but it is. But our sages make it clear later. Uh, later records uh, make it clear from um, our later descriptions, um, and it does appear when reading Tanakh. This does appear to be the case. Otherwise, there's a lot of problems in reading it. Um, that the name Artaxerxes was like Pharaoh in Egypt. Every king is called Pharaoh. Or like Caesar in Rome, every king is called Caesar, right? There was, it was kind of a name for the king. Artaxerxes was not a part, name of a particular king, but it was the way you said Persian emperor, like Kaiser and Tsar that they have later in other countries. Um, it was or Pharaoh in Egypt in ancient times. Every king was called Pharaoh. That was just the term for the king. So Artaxerxes, our Jewish tradition tells us, was just the name for king in Persia. The Greek view actually sees there being three particular people with the name Artaxerxes. Another notable contradiction, um, which is somewhat related to the um, Persian Empire, is that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of the Babylonian conquest of Egypt by King Nebuchadnezzar. The Greek sources see the conquest as happening not under Babylonian rule in the days of the Babylonian Empire, but later in the days of the Persian Empire. And what's interesting is, while accounts of the battle and accounts of um, the war itself seem to match somewhat, but the timing is totally different. One puts it, the Jewish sources put it in the days of the Babylonian Empire, while the Greek sources put it in the days of the Persian Empire. Um, so these are a number of... Um, and in fact, another interesting thing is, we're talking about the Babylonians, that while Jeremiah, Daniel, consider Nebuchadnezzar to be this ruler of a massive, massive empire, in the Greek version, while there's a massive Assyrian empire that predates the Babylonian empire, and while there's a massive Persian empire post the Babylonian empire, the Babylonian empire itself was never all that large. So there are, as you see, in addition to the missing years, there are many, many significant contradictions between these accounts that are very, very hard to reconcile. The biggest contradiction, of course, is these missing 165 years. The Persian account of the empire is an empire, sorry, the Greek account of the empire is an empire that goes four times as long as the Jewish account. Was it a short 50-year empire that kind of rose and disappeared? Or was it this long two-century empire? It's a big difference. Okay, go ahead. It's not exactly. 150 is a, is a estimate. Numbers are not exact when you speak of... I don't know if there's any symbolism to it. 
But there's definitely this contradiction that is hard to reconcile. Are you going to try to reconcile it for me? No. <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's one historical reference, and again, this is from evangelical sources. I, just, I don't see it anywhere in here, just uh, asking you about this. Zerubbabel, where does he fit in? Zerubbabel is mentioned um, by um, both Haggai, Zechariah, and in the book of Ezra. Um, he is a descendant of the house of David, grandson of the house of David, of the final kings of David, and either a son or grandson of Yechania, Yehoiakim, the um, final king, one of the last kings of Judea. And uh, he is the one who essentially leads the move to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. Um, he disappears fairly early in the story, um, and appears, according to our tradition, to have returned to Babylon. Whether he was forced to return or became disillusioned and returned on his own, and he becomes king of the Jews in Babylon, um, which was his position before that. Um, kind of returns back to his position. It's unclear why he returned, but that's who Zerubbabel was. Um, when exactly he lived would depend on when you think the second temple was built. He was definitely involved in the early stages of the building of the second temple. Uh, before it was and before it was finally built and in its final building, but seems to have disappeared right after it was completed. Um, whether um, uh, when he lived would depend on your view of history. No, no, no. There are um, I, I mentioned there are very few archaeological sources. We found a few. We found a few. We found um, there's a city called Petropolis which um, is, was claimed at one point to have been the um, capital of the Persian Empire. We're pretty certain it wasn't. It may have been kind of a summer residence, a kind of a you know, holiday residence. There's, there's a palace there that they found. Um, there's inscriptions over there. Um, there's an inscription that appears to list all the kings of the Persian Empire, um, which might be an, a strange inscription to have in a palace. Um, and lists all the kings in the, according to, exactly according to the Greek account. Um, surprisingly, surprised that it's so exact. Um, there's some debate whether it's legitimate, because we're pretty certain that there were, you know, there, there were in early time, in ancient times, there were attempts to, you know, back then, you know, people discovered fake archaeology. So there's, there, there are those who argue that it may not be real. Um, the other very interesting thing that we have from the Persian Empire is from, um, there's an island in the southern Nile, um, in southern Egypt, called Elephantine, where there was a Jewish-Persian garrison stationed there. And they, did the, and they found a long list of letters back and forth um, written to this um, Persian garrison. There's Jewish, they're, Jew, they're Jews, they're definitely Jews. There's Jewish Persian, Persian garrison in Elephantine um, in the early, clearly in the early days of the Second Temple. Um, those letters appear to back, the, the, just the names in the letters. Um, it puts the emperor, De, De, it speaks of the emperor Darius, it speaks of Hanan who we know was the leader of the Jews in Israel at the time. It speaks of Sambalat, who was the leader of the, of these letters, you know, referring to these people. Sambalat, who was the leader of the Samaritans in Israel at the time and um, who, who fought with the Jews back then. And um, 
it would appear to back the Jewish account. And, you know, the, the modern historians have kind of, you know, made all these adjustments to try to fit it in, to fit in these letters. Um, but, it, it, you, I mean, you can make everything fit. But it doesn't, it, it, at, at its, you know, at, on its face, it appears to back the Jewish traditions. So, but it, it can be explained away. In other words, you can, there may have been two Sambalots and two Hananels, you know, that lived at a later time, you know, in the days of a later King Darius. And, I mean, there's ways of, you know, resolving it. But it doesn't seem to, but there, in other words, there is some archaeology, but very little. Um, and not enough to really define one way or another. Um, another issue, thing that they've attempted to do to try to resolve this is go back to, which is one way of reading history, is go back to eclipses. Because eclipses, we, can, we know exactly when each eclipse happened historically throughout history. Right? We can date that back pretty well. Um, and there's a lot of descriptions in ancient history of eclipses in you know, kind of various years of various kingdoms, so we can match it up. And that makes things complicated. It's, it's, there's a lot of eclipses, so it's hard to know which eclipse was, one was referring to. And there's been various arguments, um, you know, trying to match eclipses into each account. So how do we resolve this question? So there has commonly been two approaches to this big question. It's not really resolvable, so one side or another is right. So Christian scholars, later secular historians in more modern times, essentially dismiss the Jewish view out of hand. It contradicts the familiar, strong, very strong Greek sources, and so they simply ignore the Jewish view. It's very simple. The Jewish view is probably not true. Um, it was made up, um, or it's not accurate entirely, um, or they didn't really know. Um, they just dismiss it and, you know, relying on the Greek view. Um, there were some Jewish scholars that took this view. In the 16th century, a well-known Jewish scholar, Azario di Rossi, um, who was um, a very fam famous Jewish-Italian scholar, pointed to this contradiction and simply argued the Jewish tradition was inaccurate. It was a mistake. He suggested that he was a religious Jew, as Jews, now it, it, it raised a crisis in faith, right? If there's mistakes, scripture could be explained with difficulty to fit the... Um, to fit the Greek account, although it's difficult to read it into scripture. Um, the, uh, clearly, the later works in Judaism clearly you know, have a different account. It's very, very clear. Um, but you know, he, as a believing Jew, he suggested that um, while we you know, rely on our Jewish traditions for Jewish laws, when it comes to historical facts, we don't need to take Jewish traditions at face value, and it's okay to disagree with them or to think that they're wrong. Um, his contemporaries were very strongly, you know, disagreed with this. Most famously, the Maharal Rabbi Hudalow of Prague, one of the most famous Jewish scholars of all times, was a contemporary of his in this in the 16th century, and um, strongly wrote against this approach that no, or um, we believe the words of our sages to be true, and how can you suggest otherwise? In more recent years, many Jewish scholars um, have followed this approach, said, you know what, maybe our Jewish tradition is just simply wrong. Um, they were mistaken. Um, most notably, there was a um, famous American rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, um, who took um, a similar approach. Um, and uh, this, is, this approach is you know, kind of the standard in the academic community. Any university, um, any historian 
will generally just, uh, who hasn't studied, you know, kind of the Jewish traditions, will generally, when you tell them, you know, there's a Jewish tradition that's different, they'll tell you, oh, oh you know, oh, I heard of that, but, you know, I don't pay attention to it. Um, so they just won't pay attention to it. And many in the Jewish community have taken that approach as well. Now, as Jews, we have an issue of how can we reject our tradition, right? That's a theological issue, which is concerning. Um, and some have said, and, you know, Rav Schwab said he was a you know, rabbi and religious Jew, and he said, well, maybe it was a deliberate mistake. They deliberately, not, it wasn't an, a mistake that they made, but they deliberately falsified our tradition. Um, why did they do that? In order to be able to figure out the dates, they, they, they wanted not to allow you to figure out the dates of the end of times. Daniel, um, in the later chapters of Daniel, we once did a class on Daniel, goes into great details where he describes when the end of times will be. And he gives you all these year numbers. Many, many books have been written trying to figure that out. We once did a class on Daniel. Um, but because they didn't want anyone to ever figure out when the end of times will be, therefore they corrupted the dates and changed everything around. It's hard to imagine our sages deliberately falsifying history. Um, I mean, it, it's quite an accusation. Uh, even more so, there isn't a single source that gives us details of Persia. It's not like there's one book, Seder Olam, that kind of goes through the chronology of Persian history. But even if Seder Olam, this book from the second century, um, is, which you know, kind of has always been considered a kind of an authoritative book in Judaism, um, even if it is dead wrong, it's not just Seder Ola. There are dozens of other sources. The whole story of the period is told under this assumption. The story, firstly, scripture um, doesn't fit with, or fits very, with great difficulty using the Greek tradition. Well, it can fit, but it's very difficult to fit it in. Um, Furthermore, um, all sorts of details in history, um, such as um, Ahasuerus's wife Vashti, we know the Talmud tells us, was uh, from the Babylonian Empire. If the story of Purim happened much later, because um, it would have happened under one of the Artaxerxes, um, would be Ahasuerus, then it happened much, much later. Then how would they have a granddaughter 100 years after the end of the Babylonian Empire, um, of the Babylonian Emperor? I mean, that's just one of dozens of examples where our whole, our, our, it's pretty clear from Scripture itself, um, and um, it's pretty clear from Scripture itself, and our sages speak of um, Jews at the building of the second temple, who were there at the destruction of the first temple, um, the men of the great assembly, who were at the early time of the second temple, which seems to have been kind of a one-time thing. Um, and most importantly, our Jewish history is very detailed. We have a detailed description of every single period in Jewish history. We know what happened. We know who lived during that time. We know who the leaders were. There's very detailed descriptions. And then you have 150 years missing. Who lived then? What happened during that time? We know nothing about it. It's totally dark, kind of a dark period with nothing. What happened? Why is it so dark? So it's very, very hard to just say they made a mistake, that they were wrong. They purposely conspired somehow to totally change history. There isn't a single record in our Jewish sources that account, there, I take that back, there's a single record in our Jewish sources 
that some say may be referring to the Greek period in a book called Pirkei de Ra the Greek tradition, in a book called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Other than that, of dozens and dozens of other sources and descriptions of that period, every single one tells a different story, tells the story of the Jewish tradition. It's hard, it, it, it's very challenging, even if you don't believe in kind of the divinity of our Torah tradition, even if you don't believe in the theological value of our tradition that you know it's holy and it comes from God or it comes from our sages who were inspired by God um, even if one would not to believe in it and one would be a critic biblical critic or critic of the later works of our sages um, it would still be very challenging to explain how Jews who lived in the Persian Empire um, and lived or living not long after their grandparents had lived in the Persian Empire have this whole different version that's clearly very different. And those 150 years just are, don't exist in our Jewish history. Another approach taken by Jewish sages to simply reject the Greek view. This approach is taken by probably the first one to mention this contradiction is Rav Sajagon in the 10th century. He lived not long after the Greek chronology of the Persian Empire was first formulated by Arab historians. Um, and uh, he brings up this issue, not just of uh, Persian history, but this issue is going back to Egyptian history and other things. Um, and uh, he makes it very clear that they're all wrong and we're right and um, they don't know what they're talking about. A similar approach is taken by other Jewish sages, Abar Benel and the Maharal, as we mentioned. It ignores Greek's, Greek history and tells an entirely different story. Now, why would the Greeks get it, get it wrong? Well, maybe they didn't live in the Persian Empire Hard to explain because they were pretty close to the Persian Empire and they interacted regularly with the Persian Empire. And for a time, they did live in the Persian Empire. They were definitely, even in scripture, in the book of Esther, it mentions Ahasuerus' rule over the Greek islands. So some suggest, well, it was early Christians that falsified all the Greek works because they wanted the founder of Christianity to come to have been born 490 years after Daniel's prophecy that the end of times will come in 490 years. So therefore they falsified history to follow the prophecy of Daniel. It could be, if that were true, when did Daniel, live then? Daniel lived in the period at the end of the Babylonian Empire, beginning of the Persian Empire. He witnesses in Daniel the fall of the Persian Empire with the famous Feast of Belshazzar and where he, they see the writing on the wall and that's the night of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So he describes the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So what, what year would that be then when he did that? Is that Sorry, that would be around 539 BC. But it could be he had his prophecy a couple years later. He was maybe a young man then, right? So it's possible that Daniel's prophecy was 490 years, in theory, according to the Greek version, before the birth of the founder of Christianity. Definitely possible. Uh, doesn't make Christianity true. It's just they may have falsified. The suggestion was that they falsified it for that reason. Um, if that were true, it would be a lot to falsify. It'd be quite a complex conspiracy, just like suggesting that the Jewish conspiracy would create a very complicated conspiracy because you've got to change a lot of things in order to create such a conspiracy. Um, some even suggested the other way, that the Jews changed the dates to disprove 
Christianity. Uh, either argument is either argument is hard to is a hard sell. Um, yeah, and especially since the Jews, as we learned about when we did our class on Judaism and Christianity, in the early days of Christianity, Jews were not very involved with Christianity. Um, Christianity was small in its early days. Um, even once the Roman Empire adopted Christianity, most Jews didn't live in the Roman Empire. Most Jews lived in, the, in what was in the Parthian Empire, outside of the Roman Empire, and didn't directly come into interaction with Christians. Yeah, it's, it's unlikely that they reacted very much to Christians back then. So, but again, to reject all Greek sources creates this huge conspiracy that's highly unlikely. And what essentially has happened is, People are often familiar with a particular discipline, a particular study, form of study. So someone who went to school or went to college and studied history with all the Greek sources and kind of did their homework and you know, learned all the Greek books from their sources, um, seem to, um, they seem to dismiss, and then they hear there's a Jewish discipline that is a Jewish tradition that's totally different. They say, oh, they're probably wrong, right? Without actually sitting and studying all the Jewish sources in their kind of where exactly, what exactly it says and where exactly it comes from. Jews have done the same thing, right? Jews who have very familiar Jewish scholars, who are very familiar with Jewish sources, they know their history. Then they hear there's a, another version of history that's totally different, well, they just dismiss it, right? And that's what's commonly done. It's easy to dismiss a view that you're not, that's very complex and based on a long history of, a long list of primary sources that you're not very familiar with. People who have studied both disciplines, and there are many who have, struggle with this. And you could Google it. There's so much written on this. So about 30 years ago, there was a historian in Israel um, called Dr. Chaim Chaifetz. Um, he came up with a novel solution. He suggested that both the Greek and Jewish versions are accurate, but they're different sides of the same history. He posited that we know that before there was a Persian Empire, there was a Babylonian Empire. Before there was a Babylonian Empire, there was an Assyrian Empire. He posited that the Assyrian Empire that lasted for some 200 years was not conquered by the Babylonian Empire. That's not what happened. Rather, what happened is the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was a vassal king along with dozens of other vassal kings within the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was a very, very large empire with lots of kings within the empire that kind of controlled their own little fiefdoms within this larger empire, but they were answerable and had to pay tribute and had to send militias to the army of the empire of this larger empire, but they had their own, there were lots of small fiefdoms within this empire. Um, we know that there were fiefdoms within the Assyrian empire. So Babylon was just simply a fiefdom within the Assyrian empire. What happens is the Babylonian conquest was not a conquest, but was what we today call a coup or a revolt where the Babylonian king marched his militia on Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, took control of the capital, killing the Assyrian kings, making himself emperor of the Assyrian Empire, moving the, moved the capital to Babylon. And now, the, what had been the Assyrian Empire simply transferred and became the Babylonian Empire with a 
new king, new emperor, which was common, you know, in these empires, often there were rebellions, and uh, simply a new capital. Instead of Nineveh, it was now Babylon. The same thing happened some 70 years later with the, with the fall of the Babylonian Empire. There weren't massive battles between a Persian armies and Babylonian armies. Rather, what happened was the Persians and Medes were vassal kings within a larger Babylonian Empire. And Persian kings had been around for 200 years. There'd been a long list of Persian kings before that. Darius and Cyrus, the Mede and Persian king, together conspired to capture Babylon with their militias. They march on Babylon and they surprise Belshazzar, the last king, the last Babylonian empire, seize Babylon, Belshazzar is killed, and they take control and they then move the capital from Babylon to Susa, which is in Persia, Shusha. So, in this view, there's essentially a single empire that lasts for a very, very long time, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are various kings, various families that become emperor. And the changes from Assyrian to Babylonian to Persian. And later, Alexander essentially does the same thing. He marches on Persia, there, there actually, we know it was a great battle, was multiple great battles. Um, he captures the Persian Empire, and he essentially declares himself Persian Emperor in Susa, makes Susa his capital, Shushan his capital, and that's where he died. So, and only after his death did the whole empire disintegrate. But it's a single empire that lasted for hundreds of years. There were <laughs> generations of Babylonian kings prior to the fall of the Assyrian Empire, generations of, Syrian of, of Persian kings prior to the fall of the, of the Assyrian and Babylonian Empire. That explains many, many Persian kings, 200 years of Persian kings, and that explains, um, and that explains how the Jewish version of these three empires um, is correct, while the long list of Persian kings and Persian wars are also correct. They weren't Persian wars or Babylonian wars. They were rather the Persian and Babylonian militias fighting on behalf of this greater Assyrian empire. Now, so this theory was posited about first, was published about 30 years ago. Um, this explanation explains a lot of perplexing details about the whole period. There's likely a grain of truth to the general theory or the general idea that the Babylonians did not, there were no major wars kind of between a Babylonian empire and a, and a, a Syrian empire or a Persian empire and a Babylonian empire, but rather they took control of existing empires. Um, there seems to be a lot of evidence for that idea, even though nobody came up with it until recently, but it's, there seems to be a lot of truth to that. However, it doesn't really, there remains many discrepancies. It doesn't resolve the contradictions. It doesn't resolve the many details of the kings. It doesn't resolve the many details of the various wars. It doesn't resolve the dates. Um, and it doesn't resolve most of the details. While it, there must, there's probably truth to the general theory. Um, it doesn't explain at least some truth to the theory of how the empires rose. It doesn't really explain away the contradiction or most of the problems in the contradiction.
Now, understandably, this is a revisionist view of history. In other words, you're taking an existing view of history and totally throwing it out and kind of rewriting it. And when it came out, many historians were up in arms. When it first came out, there were many, many articles written against it, debunking it, um, arguing against it. Um, others, a few, much less, Chaim Chaifetz's own students and followers, um, wrote many articles defending it. Um, it remains a highly, highly controversial theory. And uh, most historians don't accept it today as um, valid. There's definitely major holes in the theory, particularly the details of the, well, in, it sounds nice on the surface. When you get down into the details of the various kings, it doesn't match up. When you get down the way he tried to match it, when you get into the details of the various wars that were fought, it doesn't match up. Um, when you get into details of where the wars, wars were, it doesn't match up. There's a lot of holes in this, in this theory. So this essentially leaves us with a huge problem with no solution, no resolution that I know of. There, we offered three possible solutions. Um, the Greeks are right and the Jews are wrong. The Jews are right and the Greeks are wrong. Or maybe there's a way to mesh the two. Each of them are extremely problematic. Um, there really doesn't seem to be a way to mesh the two. Um, it's hard to explain how two nations, then two, you know, two nations with very strong sense of history, very strong recorded record, um, very detailed recorded record, who lived in and around the Persian Empire and interacted with the Persian Empire in detail and their history is intermeshed with the Persian Empire end up with such different versions of history. Um, many people have attempted to reconcile it. Much has been written about it. I don't think anyone has come up yet with a satisfactory answer. We may never come up with an answer to this question. I don't know. Um, what, we could, what we can recognize and take from all this is that both Judaism and modern scholarship have a lot to say about history and other topics. I think it is wrong for anyone to dismiss any discipline or any, um, uh, any, um, any, group, of, any, bit of, any uh, group of scholarship, whether it is Jewish-based or other cultural-based, whether it is what's taught today in universities um, or what's kind of considered the classic. Um, often, not often, but sometimes, What's called the classic is not necessarily always right. Sometimes it's oversimplified. Sometimes um, the classic system or the, the accepted system evolves, right, and changes dramatically. Um, sometimes it, and sometimes it changes back. Um, and so it's important never to ignore scholarship. Um, studying one set of scholarship while ignoring another, I think, is always a mistake. We cannot resolve every challenge and contradiction, but we can keep studying. So as I said, if you came to this class hoping to um, end with a solution or resolution, um, I'm afraid we're not going to give that to you today. Rather, um, today's just going to be questions. Um, I'm leaving you with a question. I have no answer for it. Um, I was asked to share the question and challenge with you, so I did. Um, but I really don't know how you're going to sleep tonight. Um, if you can sleep over it, um, or you can go home and start doing the research. And maybe one of you will figure this out.